Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. I think you'll enjoy this interview today with uh, Lisa Klaas, CEO International of CoreLogic. Lisa's shown a remarkable ability to go outside her comfort zone in her career, starting first of all as a barrister, then going to general counsel, then going to divisional management, and then finally to a CEO role. In her current position, she also has a lot of other countries that she oversees and really describes how she adjusts her style to resonate with those groups. She talks about her personal self-care practices, her passion for design, and uh, how she uses horse whisperers <laughs> to know what's really going on across her organization. She had the remarkable ability to increase employee engagement in 2020 and uh, really talks about what she and her team did to really help make that happen. I'm sure you'll learn a lot from Lisa and particularly women who aspire to senior leadership positions. Enjoy. Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Graham. Lisa, I read in last January's Financial Review that one of your favorite binge watches in 2020 was The Bridge, which I also watched. What did you particularly like about that? Many things, and I'm certainly not one who's normally comfortable with gruesome visuals or violence on the screen, but I I, I love the professionalism of the acting I, I think I even enjoyed the subtitles, uh, although you can't make dinner while uh, <laughs> keeping a lazy ear in because my Swedish is not not that good. But look, I, I I actually was a little bit besotted with the lead female detective saga, and I found it very interesting. The show is obviously about solving you know usual serial murders. But it's also about her own personal journey, how she, woman in her mid to late 30s, kind of learns about how to relate because I think she has Asperger's. She, she is by normal standards very odd, by normal standards. And, you know, I have a theory about we're all on the spectrum just somewhere. <laughs> uh, so I, I found, I love the, the very delicate parallel that the series presented. So it was, uh, yes, yeah, solving a murder. There was always an outcome, but her personal journey I found um, very interesting, very subtle. It was just subterranean in, in all the plots. But, uh, yeah, that, that's, what, that's what I enjoyed. And it was lovely seeing the interplay, wasn't it, between the male detective who was quite gregarious and comfortable with people and, and her, which I should say was probably, you know, Asperger's. But, uh, you know, it was... They formed a very powerful team, didn't they, by working together? Yes, yes. So it certainly uh, uh, triggered me up off on a on a genre that has no end. I've discovered. <laughs> um, I, I just marvel at the fact that you know Finland, Sweden, and uh, Denmark are you know such really relatively tiny little countries, and they have this 
prodigious manufacturer of uh, high quality uh, crimes. So <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, it is great to watch, and I've been exploring lots of that as well. Alisa, for our many listeners, could you give us a brief overview of your career to date? I mentioned the ING and and also you know your role now logic, but I guess a bit more of the earlier career and how you evolved. You were at one stage a barrister. What led you to evolve out of that? Yes, I've certainly probably get the prize for eclecticism in terms of uh, career and, you know, sometimes rather cheekily uh, I say it was all part of a grand strategic plan, but of course it wasn't. You know, it was a combination of uh, the pivots in my career or the what may from a distance look like quite dramatic changes or inflection points were, were uh, you know, driven by a combination of, you know, sure, drive and ambition, circumstance, situation, and opportunities. And, uh, you know, nothing didn't always go to plan either. But uh, so, yeah, so I I was a, a arts law student in uh, University of Queensland and uh, very propelled by social justice and, and thought that, if I did law, that I'd be able to, you know, right all the wrongs in the world and use my profession to bring more equity to a lot of issues that uh, I, I found needed writing, which, uh, you know, sort of grew up in the era of Bob Hawke and uh, his what he was doing off the back of the trade union movement, you know, the days where university uh, students were uh, probably a little bit more radical than, than they are today. So I thought that that would, and I, I like speaking and presenting and arguments, and so I thought, oh, this is the perfect um, career for me, but I will go straight to the bar from university. I obviously didn't know what impossible uh, meant then. I thought that's what you did. You did a combined law degree and you just went and started practice. Uh, but I, I pretty much did do that. I, I worked for a judge. I was a judge's associate in, you know, as my bridge career into the bar and, and there I was and found out pretty quickly that, uh, the actual practice, the day to day practice of, of law was very different to my perception. I spent a lot of, as a very junior barrister, spent a lot of time sitting outside court. I did a lot of, you know, menial matters or matters that more experienced barristers wouldn't get out of bed for. <laughs> I had a lot of shellacking by judges with my client uh, sitting next to me and, and saw, I guess, sides of life and society that my middle-class upbringing probably wouldn't have exposed me to, which was good for me. And and I think I look back on that period of, you know, what I Endured is a strong verb, but the preparation I do every night was like doing an HSC example exam. I I knew I didn't know there was so much I didn't know, which of course probably as a woman I tended to you know sweat and focus on and and uh, but little by little I got better and better at it. Uh, but that career was interrupted. I say. Facetiously, I'd be well and truly a judge by now. There'd have to be something seriously wrong with it if I wasn't. But I got married and I moved into state. So that was, you know, I talk about opportunity, you know, ambition, opportunity and circumstance. That was the point where I moved from Brisbane to Sydney and had to completely start 
afresh. Uh, from ground zero, I, I was realised at that, you know, still in my 20s that uh, going to the bar in Sydney was a very expensive undertaking. I had no network. It's actually a high referral profession. Uh, it's, you know, no, it's so, you know, it's not just, you, you, there was no internet then. It's not, not, a, not a business you build by social media. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, a business on trust and competency and you only get that by, you know, being known and being seen to be good and get good outcomes and, and have a following of solicitors that brief you, you know, the woman or man on the street don't brief you directly. So that's, you started there, I thought, very sensibly. I've just spent three years getting to a point. I, and, you know, wanted to get into the property market, had other, you know, my life, uh, was married and had, uh, you know, certainly wanted to probably, well, go into other perspectives of my life and put the foundations in place there. So I I thought, right, I, I really enjoy the practice of law. I enjoy the commercial side of law. I'll become a general counsel. So step away from the advocacy part and go and uh, work for corporation. So I was, you know, very fortunate from, you know, the day I landed after my honeymoon, work in, walk into a very large highly diversified um, financial services business called Mercantile Mutual. They actually don't exist anymore, I don't think, because <laughs> of all the global financial crisis and, mm. you know, banking royal commissions and, you know, that bank assurance model uh, is, uh, you know, probably a figment of the past. So, you know, and again, stepped in there and that was an enormous learning experience. So, you know, someone who practiced in personal injuries law and property damage, now going to the pointy end of tax and corporate and big commercial contracts and sort of sort of starting again, climbing climbing that ladder. And and that was a probably a, a long you know, a runway I was on for a long time, but I think, you know, what was a feature of it was that it was a it was a growth trajectory. You know, it, I it expanded into compliance and privacy and risk and superannuation, and so it became, if you like, the full enterprise uh, general counsel role. Had you know, highly diversified. So that was that trajectory, and then I guess I started going sideways more into the the business sphere which you know I had a pretty pretty good springboard from what I'd learned in you know corporate life to jump into the commercial track and what motivated you to look sideways i had a uh, if you like a a practice run at it and and it wasn't a practice run that i uh, a lot of people you know, think that you go to roll, you lobbying and you're mm-hmm. elbowing your way in. And sort of the irony of it is that I was very fortunate to have some really strong male leaders. There weren't many, I don't, can't remember any more senior female re- uh, leaders then who, who said to me, you know, you, you seem to be good at leading people and why don't you you have a go at this and I was quite horrified I was like oh no I'm going to be a lawyer I love being a general counsel I'm not going to do uh again I guess I was a little bit you know a little bit apprehensive about that but I was literally like I, I was pushed off into not directed but 
you know, I want you, uh, I was asked very nicely to go and mined a life insurance company with my extensive <laughs> actuarial background, uh, which I haven't told you. Mined for about 18 months the life insurance company as their, as their executive. I think subliminally that uh, the business was going through a rapid transformation and organisational restructure and and I was asked to step away from my general counsel role and, and go into that. And I remember, you know, drinking from the fire hose and having a lot of self-doubt about, you know, how uh, how can I do this and, and whatever. But I got into a bit of a rhythm and I think it sowed a, it had a fixed end point. So it was going, while well, the restructure's going on, I want you can come back, uh, but I want you to look after this business. So I went in, I, I went back, and I think that, so, you know, whetted my appetite about broader commercial roles and that you didn't have to know everything. You didn't have to be like a lawyer, a barrister, where you really have to know everything, otherwise there's high exposure, <laughs> high failure rate, and has a direct impact on your uh, remuneration. Uh, so I, I, I kind of, and it was an incredible environment too. It was, uh, it wasn't a, a, a it was a safe environment looking back. So I did that. I came back to being general counsel and then before you know it, I initiated a move to one of the subsidiaries, which was the bank, which was ING Direct. I had been working for them as a lawyer and saw uh, an opportunity to, again, you know, it's a series of building up, going, resetting, establishing from scratch their, you know, legal risk and compliance unit, sat on the executive committee. It was a high growth, very innovative, very different bank. Fair to say I had a lot of financial services experience, but I, I didn't have the pure banking experience. So I wanted to, I thought this is a good, I can learn about banking. It was an incredible leader as a CEO. I could learn from someone I loved working with, wanted to learn more from him. And then, I, can I just uh, jump back yeah. to something you said before, Lisa? You said it was a safe environment and you had a good leader. How did that manifest itself? How did you feel that it was safe? Uh, yeah, what, what I meant by safe is that I think, you know, safe is, you know, environments where, you know, you're not where if you make mistakes or you're encouraged to try, you know, uh, people with more knowledge or experience are very accessible to you and, you know, there's a, a level of encouragement. I mean, as an executive, you don't get gold stars, but you know, you listen to. So, yeah, so that, that, that's what I meant by, yeah, what I meant by safe. Yeah. And I think, you know, clearly the confidence I had that others saw something in me that I probably didn't even see myself and were willing to take such a big risk on me uh, in a really critical, highly, you know, very lucrative, critical part of the business, even even for an 18-month period, I think, is is safe is about risk taking as well. So that that's what I meant. What I mean by by safe is mm. you know being given rich development opportunities when you're not perfect diving mm. into them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting now. You know, groups like Google have done extensive research to find out what's the key to their most successful team. And the number one thing is team psychological safety, which is just what you describe. People feel can be themselves, they feel safe to take risks, they'll know they'll be supported. 
And they also know that it's a learning environment. So if things go wrong, you learn from it and move on. And uh, you know, I think that's really interesting to hear that that was also an environment that yeah. allowed you to flourish as well. And this is pre-Google, of course. So, of you know, course. I think a lot of the contemporary businesses have put labels on on these things that have been, uh, you know, around, you know, and, and why they're around, they, you know, they come from, the, you know, people often, you know, unique individuals that inject these, these sort of behaviours into their environments. Yeah. When you reflect on, you know, the people that you've worked with, the, the bosses you've had, the people you've led, what do you think is the key to having a strong team, apart from the psychological safety which we've already mentioned? It's no one thing. Um, feedback that's, you know, clearly when you're doing things well is is important uh, and and the corollary is when, you know, it delivered in a respectful way when you're not doing things well. You know, something I, I think a great, you know, great leaders do is they think about what's unique about people around them, um, like you do as parents. Uh, I, I see a lot of parallels to being a CEO <laughs> and a parent. Um, or, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, they let their team, you know, their team member know what it is that's unique about them and, and special about them. And I don't want to sound like naff about it, but, you know, that that's sort of the, the beauty and the power of organisations is the collective, you know, human leverage, which is bringing together this, you know, very rich tapestry of uh, attributes and capabilities that are all all different and it's kind of those that fit them together. So. So there's that, but for me, I think it was the most powerful thing was people seeing in me uh, something and giving me the opportunity, uh, and taking that risk is, I, I think, is is really, really, really powerful. And something I have, I believe, I've emulated as as a CEO that you know it's it was done to me, and and I feel very strongly about doing that to, you know, those around me that have an appetite for it, of course, yeah. What were the important business lessons you learned out of your time at ING? Oh, well, customer. <laughs> <laughs> Compromising for the customer. So, you know, very much it, it, it's certainly shareholders important, but uh, those highly nuanced trade-offs that, would be made in favour of the customer that may not always be right for the shareholder. Democratic structure, fluid environment in the sense, you know, very non-hierarchical, far for a bank, fast pace. You know, and I, I like I do with CoreLogic, I, I certainly enjoy the global aspect of these businesses. So, and why not because I like travel. <laughs> it's good because we can, none of us can do any of that at the moment. <laughs> I just like the opportunity to interact as I did at ING and I do at CoreLogic with just people from different cultures and different backgrounds. Mm. So that's, that's what I enjoy there and I, and I, I definitely enjoy here. Yeah. How do you adjust to different cultures? You know, who are some of the groups that you work with? Who are some of the countries? And how did you learn how to resonate with another culture? 
practices or, you know, behaviors apply whatever culture you, uh, you know, you interact, you know, kind of respect and listening and understanding and, um, you know, understanding what motivates that the person you're interacting as, you know, that can be tricky when you're, you know, you don't have a lot of, a lot of time, uh, to do that. But, you know, I, it is, a little trickier in a virtual environment, but you know, I'm, you know, I can pick up not only on what people say, but how they behave and, you know, the whole body language certainly helps me. So I think there is definitely, you know, something about perceiving and listening when you're trying to understand someone more than telling and, and, and speaking. So, and then look, you know, Nothing's more powerful than alignment and all being brought together by a collective goal. So that really helps. So, you know, in both ING and CoreLogic, you know, we have a very, we have a common purpose. It's very evident and visceral and, and, you know, I like to think we all believe in that. You know, that sort of ties you all, all together. But, you know, everyone, every country or culture has its peculiarities and different senses of humour. Sometimes learned that the hard way. But, uh, uh, you know, Australia, you've got to know a lot about our culture too. You know, we do things in a – we find things funny. We have a very – I've found over the years we have a, we have a very unique sense of humour. Well, for a start, we use an, an enormous amount of vernacular that no one else does. <laughs> so, um, you know, you have to be – you have to translate yourself uh, sometimes when you're speaking. And we say a lot of things facetiously that a lot of other cultures, particularly the Americans, take literally. So you've got to be – you've got to be careful of that, whereas the British will – and the Dutch and some of the European countries are, you know, they, they do not. So yeah, they just, just, I like to get the, the rules of engagement in terms of sense of humor right first. <laughs> <laughs> That's an yeah. important, important thing for sure. What led you to make the decision to leave ING and, and join CoreLogic? This sounds like I'm making this very dramatic, but probably about, Ten years ago, after, you know, I'd been in the business, I was running, uh, you know, I've been running various divisions and, and, you know, ultimately the retail division at ING and I, I, I look, it wasn't an overnight epiphany, but I, I, I had, a, I did have a desire to lead, be a CEO and not because of the title, because I wanted to be able to have an impact on shaping people's development, shaping a strategy and producing better customer outcomes. Mm-hmm. So and it it was it was really potent. I had that I had that desire to do that. And um when you deconstruct it it was about I love solving problems, I love diversity of people, I, I like work, I always have I like shaping, uh, you know, t- having a hand in shaping someone's development, as has been done with me. So, you know, all of those things tend, if you put those ingredients together, a CEO role is a great role that allows you to, you know, realise that. So, mm. you know, coupled with that, I had, um, you know, something I loved at ING was establishing the digital uh, channel, you know, and was it was 
started it with five people called e-commerce and definitely <laughs> one of the leading um, digital banks. And uh, so, you know, being at the, uh, what is it, zeitgeist or zeitgeist mm, of mm. Um, trends and, you know, all that, very started to get very interested in data uh, and insights from data and how that they could uh, help organisations, you know, manage risk, uh, drive growth and enhance productivity. So when you, yeah, so I think and love the the global aspect, you know, I mentioned the, the multi-country bit, I, I like that bit and uh, I, I did have, you know, not that ever, you're ever in a position to pick and choose, but CoreLogic is a very, it's an organic and an acquisition play. So mm. CoreLogic International um, is a series of acquisitions um, mm. as well as it has its core engines. And, you know, I'm, I'm, and since I've been here, we've done that acquisitions and investment. And that, if you like, was my development area in my career that I wanted to get exposure to that and have a, have a key role in that. And, you know, it kind of, and, you know, the stars aligned, Graham. It was yeah. the opportunity came about. I had great relationships with there was a, a strategic partner to ING. You know, I had a great relationship with the previous CEO and not that he made the decision, but you just mm. you certainly get, I guess you get into the information flow and knowing when things are, are shifting and, you know, try and do my best in my career and my Work hard to keep a keep a decent reputation, and uh, so all, all of that that came together, and it was kind of like ticking the ticking the box of these are the like when you're looking for the house, <laughs> I want a sunroom, I want a pool, tick tick, this is it, um, and it certainly hasn't disappointed. It's uh, you know been, I've I've really really enjoyed it. Uh, it, it is exactly uh, what. Uh, uh, without me knowing, it was like the iPhone for me. I really have enjoyed what I've been what I've been doing here and the people I've been working with. So yeah, so that what? that was an opportunity and mm. it, it came up and and I was ready and yeah. What do you use from your experience in the law that you apply in your day to day operations as as a CEO now? Oh, a few, quite a lot, more than you would think. Nothing to do with the subject matter of law. So, you know, I'm a very dangerous lawyer if you ask me <laughs> what the law was on certain aspects. So firstly, bandwidth. You know, the practice of law uh, it teaches you to review intelligently large, vast amounts of material and synthesize them and get the get what's really important out of it. So if you think about that discipline, uh, which you get drilled into you is really valuable in business because in particularly a CEO, a lot of information, got to be able to cut through and see really what's important. That written and verbal communication, written and oral communication, I know that sounds basic, but teaches you how to write, teaches you how to speak, get your point of across quickly. Uh, this may sound a little bit ironic, but it actually, you know, you spend your life as a lawyer telling people what the risk is and what not to do as uh, what it does. It gives you a highly, a really good sense of the risk. And then as a business person with the legal background, you know what the real risk is. 
So you're in a position to take that risk because you know that the risk might be so low that it's worth uh, cost-benefit, it's worth taking. As a lawyer, that's not your decision to make, but as a business person. So you, it teaches you to have a very, an enterprise, a very prismatic view of risk, which is really useful because nothing's, nothing in life is black and white. So definitely, I'd say they were the, the three main practices that it's, it's, it's taught me. Yeah. Right. Lawyers don't have a, a great record at uh, self-care. You know, there's very high yeah. levels of anxiety stress, addiction in the law. Uh, as a CEO, you're in a very stressful job. Has has self-care been an important part of how you live your life? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and then, you know, there are, I probably get butterflies in my, you know, stomach every week, you know, mm. um, doing things that have pretty, you know, massive consequences, uh, decisions, and, you know, it's not a perfect world. So, so uh, one, I think, former, I get a lot of energy from people, so that's good, people both with, within and outside of work. Uh, so I, uh, that that's, is a de-stressor in itself. You know, a great believer in exercise and, and physical and mental exercise. So, uh, you know, apart from, you know, breaking into a sweat as often as you can, that, that's really important to get your heart rate up. You know, all the basics around nutrition and drinking the right, you know, drinking lots of water. I've got to sound like a, uh, yeah, <laughs> some, <laughs> anyway. But I, I think there's something else for me. So I get a lot of relaxation from design. So, you know, whether it's clothing design or do interior design or, or just sort of exercising that the other side of the brain that I'm not using so much, uh, during my working um, hours. So I find that incredibly relaxing, uh, you know, working with my dressmaker and sourcing fabrics and, you know, uh, colour. I'll often walk the streets and take photos of architecture and, you know, it really gives me a lot of pleasure, uh, mm. you know, beauty in form. And, and I'm very, you know, blessed to live in a very beautiful, natural environment. So mm. I get a, you know, that, that, that in itself is a natural stabiliser in my life. And great believer in knowing where your fulcrum is, your e- finding your equi- equilibrium. So often, you know, I feel, um, oh, you know, I'm getting stressed and, you know, I'm doing too much, you know, it's a lot of anxiety because of, you know, things you can't control or whatever. And I I think if you know how to pull back or change or step out of that for a while, and uh, I think that's a really powerful quality people can have, um, know your equilibrium and don't be ashamed or afraid to to call it. It's just like, mm. you know, children um, mm. say, I'm tired now, I've got to go to bed. Mm. You know, people who know, you know, I've done too much running this week, I've eaten too much sugar, I'm you know, not mm. going to do that tomorrow. I'm spending too much time with that person who's negative. I'm, mm. uh, I, I need to walk around and look at some beauty in the environment and just know when, and you flick it. And you, then you go back to those, you know, 
endeavours that can be very stressful, but you're refreshed and you've reset yourself. So Absolutely. Yeah. What, how do you, you mentioned about being able to monitor and know, is there things you feel that trigger that? You know, how do you know when you need to sort of change course a bit? I'd like to think I'm very self-aware. So, um, and you know, and that self-awareness has matured as I've, you know, gone on, got older. Sometimes it's, you know, other, you know, trusted people who might tell you, uh, that you're, hey, you know, you're, you're, you're stressed or, you know, they'll pick up on, on it and you may not be aware of it. So, you know, clearly it's a bit of a combination, um, of both, but, I kind of I prefer the the self regulation because uh, everyone's not always entirely honest with you. So, but but that is uh, if you know in terms of life advice I give to people is you know know your recipe, know what works mm-hmm. for you. You know know in every aspect of your life what you need um, mm-hmm. as much as you can and defend it. You know that that's you. That's you at your best, and go out and and find that, and be proud of it, and 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 and, and fight for it. Uh, and it's not necessarily being selfish; it, it is being because when you're at your best, you're in a better position to be selfless. So, you know, I, I'm I'm very particular about knowing knowing me. Yeah, my children oh. know. Yeah. <laughs> I often talk and present on self-care isn't selfish, and it's for exactly those reasons that you just outlined. If you haven't got fuel and tank for yourself, you can't have it for other people. What do you look for in a great friend? Loyalty, yeah. yeah. So, you know, not unquestioned adoration or is, uh, yeah, just, just loyalty. And I guess someone who, and there's only, you know, like, all of us is only usually should I should only be a handful of people yeah. that know that you and they're the people that know that you and love that you for all its flaws. That's what I look for in a great friend. Yeah, but you you earn that, you know, mm. you, you ta- and they take takes a long time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I once read that you know these really great friendships require three things: positivity, so it's a good experience. Consistency, which means you see each other regularly, and also vulnerability. You know, you can actually be vulnerable with those people. I think that's quite a good uh, summary yeah. of, of the critical components. Yeah. In your role as CEO, you're also and you you have your executive team, and you're not just responsible for your energy and mood. You see the energy and mood in that team. How do you monitor that? And I'm talking at this stage about your immediate team. Your direct yeah. reports. Well, you know, there's a, I, I, I guess there's a sort of static quantitative way of, you know, we have engagement surveys which are meaningful uh, and, and, you know, doing those regularly and having as much consistency in the, the probes is important so that you can compare um, apples with apples. Look, there is... You know, one setting up a operating rhythm that makes you very accessible to them. So whether it's 
you know, you have your one-on-ones. I know this sounds basic, but surprise, some, some CEOs don't have one-on-one. You know, having, a, having that opportunity, obviously we meet as a team very, very, there's something about consistency, like having the, uh, having those, uh, signals or signposts in your operating environment where, uh, you're meeting as a team regularly, you're meeting one-on-one regularly. But I think there's also what is very powerful for me is spontaneity as well. So, uh, you know, I will call my team, you know, they spon- you know, they, I don't set it up, I just call them and, and I encourage them to just call me. Don't wait for that formal one-on-one. So reason that's important is that these are ways you know, just ways you can put the thermometer in the environment to test the mood of the team because, mm-hmm. you know, people can be can be quite contrived in a you know, executive meeting. They'll mm-hmm. say what you think that people want them to say. They may not want to wear their heart on their sleeve, whereas, you know, you, you definitely get a different perspective in a, in in a different environment and in a different combination with them and in a different mode of communication. So it won't doesn't necessarily always be, you know, face to face, it can be on the phone. There is, I'm a great believer in, you know, what I call the horse whisperers in organizations. So having, you know, trusted allies that are a good bellwethers. You know, they they are They've got high personal credibility themselves. They know the environment well. They're very trusted and respected, and they—they're what I call your rearview mirror readers. Yeah. So yeah. They because sometimes your perspective, you know, can be you want to hear what you want to hear, or you don't want to hear. Mm. You will. Mm. You could interpret a cry for help or a. a you know, an utterance of dissatisfaction in a certain way, whereas if you get that balancing factor, someone to sort of say, hey, you know, I'm feeling a bit tension here and, oh, what tension? I'm fine. <laughs> um, so that, 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 that's critical, you know, apart from mm. your own intuition, which isn't always 100% reliable. So it's sort of, you know, a great believer in putting multiple but not too many filters yeah. on taking reads on things like the numbers, you know. Yeah. You ultimately have a source of truth, but I like cutting things in different ways. How many horse whisperers would you have in, in the organisation? Oh, two. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong, these, these people, are, these are, and they change according to where the organisation, you know, what period of, evolution the organization is is going through but i think it's particularly critical as a ceo and it's at different levels as well that uh and, and these are people that don't ever breach confidence as they're sort of this elegance the way they 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 can operate yeah so it, it's something i think without knowing it in past careers i've played that role without yeah. knowing it at yeah. the time where my counsel has been sought from the, the CEOs and and I you know I was kind of flattered but I now realize what role I was playing in addition to my functional responsibility and it's a very you know it's a role you, you take you handle you know extremely carefully yeah yeah 
We've just got about uh, five minutes left, but one thing I'd really like to get your thoughts and reflection on is last year, 12 months, there's been a lot of change, is not there? Quite a bit of change. How, how do you as a CEO equip your organisation, your employees, your managers to thrive on that change rather than be fatigued by the change? Yeah, so I think, you know, as human beings, we all, we all seek certainty, which has been very elusive in this very ambiguous environment. So, you know, very much control what you can control. So, you know, for our business, we certainly throughout the distributed, disruptive COVID period really amped up the communication. So every week last year, either myself or the head of HR was talking about the business or how people are feeling. We, we put on a whole lot of extra, extracurricular activities that were a, a good reason to bring people together remotely. The whole, you know, whether it be, you know, desk stretches wherever you are, uh, you know, we had, competitions and quizzes and not mandatory participation. Uh, so we've got a lot of, in addition to the, you know, the steady beat of the business, um, yeah. the pulse of the business, a lot of communication. And, you know, we've all, you know, this is probably something I, you know, I'm a great believer in that, you know, sim- simple strategy articulation, plan on a page, uh, the, the, the KPIs, the, you know, the big rocks that are going to move the KPIs, the measurement of those, you know, it's all, all those artifacts. They're just on high rotation in our business. So everyone knows how they're going, you know, how the business is going and what their role is in terms of supporting the furtherance of the business. So, so that just continued in spite of all this uncertainty, but, you know, definitely the addition was those, uh, you know, those more human elements. We, we always have a level of it, but we over-indexed on that. It really showed in the engagement results. It, you know, they were the highest they've ever been with a lot of, you know, very positive feedback. You know, people never been more informed, never been more engaged. So, so uh, you know, we I like to think, you know, the team here did a great job in turning what could have been a relentless negative slog into something that was quite positive and we will take a lot from, although it's not over yet, uh, we'll take a lot of the learnings from the experience into, you know, we'll normalise it and, and bring it through as we go forward. Yeah. I happen to believe that this environment, the rapidly changing environment, and really plays to many women, uh, their natural abilities, their intuition, their capacity to build connection and that sort of thing. How how can we get more women in senior leadership? Uh, very simple. Uh, You've you got to give them opportunities. So, you know, the best thing you can give to a woman is not a course, is a development opportunity that has some edge and stretch and a uh, a risk of failure. That is the best thing you can give a woman. So, uh, and that's what's been done to me, and that's what I. That's my commitment in my executive career. 
uh, to do. And you look at the executive here, you've got women in meaningful executive roles, not because they're women, because they're bloody good. You know, they're, they're, they're the best in our business to, to do that. So it is, it is the pipeline that needs the attention, not the, you know, a lot with a lot of focus on the outcomes, the results, but you've got to get the pipe. You've got to get women being exposed to development opportunities in meaningful roles or endeavors, meaningful meaning whatever has a direct connection to the strategic you know, what I call the, the arteries of the organisation, finance, sales, strategy, you know, uh, that, that that's what you, you've got to do. You know, I, I will have some pretty direct, brutal conversations with younger aspirational women about you're never going to get to the top in that role doing that job. Mm. So mm. either change roles, change managers or change organisations. It's been great uh, speaking with you today, Lisa. I've really enjoyed hearing about, you know, the communication you've made a priority this year, the connection, you know, encouraging people to go outside their comfort zone and also having a bit of a, I guess, a, a radar for knowing when things could be off course. And I've never heard it used as the horse whispers before, but I like that. I like that term, people that you really trust, people that, you know, had their finger on the pulse and somehow managed to respect confidences in the organization. Knowing what you know now, having been in business and law for a fair bit of time, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self uh, <laughs> if you had to start again? What would you, what advice would you give yourself? You know, definitely the, the, the power of networks and going above and beyond and, and getting new experiences. Even, you know, within, I think a lot of people see constraints within roles, within organisations, within network relationships. But, you know, uh, that, uh, I guess that discipline to continually seek and to nurture uh, networks in terms of whether personal or, or business relationships and just ensuring that you've always got something, you're always involved in a, you know, a significant uh, way in something that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable because that's where progress comes from. You know, that's where you get the the leverage in in performance and, yeah, so and you have to manufacture it yourself because it just doesn't often come on a silver platter for you. So uh, that that's that's what I would uh, tell my younger self, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So just going outside your comfort zone, being prepared to do that, and, and I guess – when you look at your career, you've done that on a number of occasions and uh, it is, it's where we learn the most, isn't it, when we're outside our comfort zone? What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> That's a great attitude. Thank you very much for being part of the Caring CEO, Lisa. Really appreciate it and look forward to catching up with you at a later time sometime. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. 
If you are interested in seeing details about our scalable We Care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.